electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, reopening the economy. Some say it's too fast, and others, like Elon Musk, say it's not fast enough. Tech journalist and fellow podcaster Kara Swisher on Musk and his plans for Tesla. You can't see a Tim Cook doing this or anybody else doing this. I think Texas and Nevada would probably welcome him. So I don't know why he wouldn't accept the defense. Senator Rob Portman, the Ohio Republican, responds to House Democrats' latest coronavirus relief proposal. This is $3 trillion. This is more than the last four packages combined. And it does nothing, as I see it, to help get the economy moving. And the founder of direct-to-consumer shoe brand M. Jemmy, like those Instagram ads, considers the path forward. For sure, demand has changed. We're actually still selling product, but it's a very different type of product. We're focusing on comfort product. It's Wednesday, May 13th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, Reopening America. During Tuesday's hearing of the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, we heard from the White House's top infectious disease expert and, in many ways, the face of the American response to COVID-19, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, isolating in his home office like many of us, and in fact, many of the other hearing attendees, testified virtually. And he issued a warning to Congress about reopening state economies too soon. If that occurs, there is a real risk that you will trigger an outbreak that you may not be able to control, which in fact, paradoxically, will set you back, not only leading to some suffering and death that could be avoided, but could even set you back on the road to trying to get economic recovery, because it would almost turn the clock back. It's a delicate balance. And this week, we're watching one state on the West Coast closely as it attempts to gradually revive businesses. Here's Joe Kernan. California Governor Gavin Newsom announced plans for the next stage, including allowing some offices, malls, and outdoor museums to resume operations, but there will be modifications. Uh, Offices that can't telework uh, would be allowed to reopen with safety upgrades, and shopping malls and strip malls would be allowed to offer curbside pickup. Car washes, pet grooming, and dog walking would also be allowed to resume. The governor didn't provide a date for the changes. In the meantime, the California State University system, uh, which runs 23 campuses, is planning to hold its fall semester online. There will be some exceptions for in-person activity, obviously like research labs. Uh, The announcement, though, dims the prospects for college football in the fall. The president of the NCAA has said he doesn't see a scenario where athletes uh, can take place or athletics can take place if students uh, can't return to campus. And lots swirling yesterday with the, uh, the, the hearings, the remote hearings, and the very uh, somber sort of tone. Others have pointed out that Fauci's job is to talk about the public health and to talk about risk and to talk about mortality and morbidity and everything else. It's not necessarily to mix that all in 
uh, with with the steps he needed to reopen the economy. He was very upfront about that. He he said that himself yeah. yesterday. Yeah. In fact, uh, when he was having during one of the answers, he said, "Look, my job is to tell you about the health implications. There are other people who can talk to you about the economic implications." So, right. Uh, but it I was, think it was a with sober, Rand Paul. And uh, yeah, with Rand Paul too. Yeah. I, there's you know there's you know the clickbait websites. I can't help myself with Grudge, the other ones, and and you know, they're getting worse with what the headline is. And then I read it, and it's like that's that's not what they're saying. You you're lying. You're, you're, you're it's clickbait. But so I don't know what to believe and what not to. But it, productivity is increasing with people that are doing their jobs from home. Did you read that one? Productivity is in. Yep. If you if you you read that one, is, is that true? That, that people are and, more productive if well, they're yeah, not commuting, not commuting. Do you know how much time that saves people? I still think when you go into the work environment, there's a re- so all this time you end up chit chat, chit chat, chit chat, chit chat. So no one's ever going back to work. Twitter people are never going back to work. People that work at Twitter, people yep. that. I'm worried about Google, YouTube. Google they, said they're it, not going back. Going to be like this forever <laughs> on this. Uh, I'm okay from here. You're okay from there. Well, hell, move to Florida or something. Sorkin wants to go there. I know that. <laughs> right? A lot of reasons. A lot of reasons, buddy. You know what I'm saying? Income tax down there. <laughs> tax. Right? Huh? Tax am I right or am I right? Right. Right. I, I, I want to come back to New York. I'm looking at him. He's like over to here, come back to the NASDAQ. What's that, Andrew? To see you in person. Yeah, you're coming back. Uh, no, you we'll be back together. Uh, I'm going to come back. You'll be back. I'd but like do you really back. believe people are more um, productive? I, I don't believe that thing. I'm I do. That part, I, do. I think for, for, a lot of, for a lot of white, what white describe as white-collar work, I do. I think that you can get a lot more done. And I, I think it's true. Becky hit with it on the With one exception. How, how often, by the way, even during the commercial breaks, do we chit-chat? We chit-chat. A lot of chit-chat goes on. But I, I will tell you the one exception to that is when you have kids at home, it's very yeah. difficult to work later Dogs. in the day. It's fine now when they're asleep, that's true. but it's, it gets a lot tougher to work later in the day, and that's a huge issue. All these office workers, all so they'd all, it, you know what, it wouldn't have been possible before, but we're so wired into uh, uh, where we work, maybe it's possible. It's just a, it's a whole new world. I don't know. Can I tell you, Andrew and I got an email yesterday uh, with con- concerning the WeWork interview, and I won't say who it's from because, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we're allowed to say it, but it, someone brought up a very interesting point, and it's in terms of trying to get people to come back to work, it, it, the real question is, how do they get there? If you can't use public transportation, right. Right. how do you possibly get all of those people in? There's not enough parking space, especially in a place like New York City. Okay. Right. I, I, right. I think that, I mean, but I wonder, Becky, I don't know if you think, I think New York City may be a, a particularly, major cities, but New York, Chicago maybe, Washington, any place that has, pub, where people genuinely rely on public transport, that to me is, is going to be, I imagine, the gating factor for, for a lot of the, the opening of the offices and things like that. No? Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. What, what but, month but, is but it? But maybe for, the, for large parts of the country where, where, where that's not the case, um, it may be a different different story. But Wait, talking it about, May? Uh, it, it's May. we're soft. We are we're, we're ready. You know, we couldn't believe everything would be closed down. Now we can't believe that we'll ever be back to normal. Do you? People in World War II, I mean, they they were in that mode for years and years and years. Men were gone. People had to do different things. There were rationing. I mean, for four years, four or five years, they had to. To do that, it was never going to end. And you must have been in a position back then where you thought 
you know, I, I've been in, uh, we've been at war for my entire life, is, is what it would have been. And I feel like we're getting in that mindset now that we never think we're going to come out of that, out of this. And don't you think we'll look back and go, oh, we will. Remember, remember 2020? We will. We'll come out of it. Yeah, but, but that's the thing. You will remember it because <laughs> this is life altering right. and it's, it's lasting for a while. I mean, well, at watching least, the kids go through this every day have, and trying to deal. It's, think of it without Netflix, okay? That's, I'm going to leave us with a positive uh, <laughs> in, in Amazon. Elon Musk is a CEO known for breaking the rules. He defied stay-at-home orders by opening Tesla's Fremont factory and has become a leader of sorts of the movement to reopen overnight. The Alameda County Health Department tweeted that it received a prevention and control plan from Tesla and held some productive discussions with the company and its representatives. It said that if Tesla includes its suggestions and conditions remain stable or improve, it has agreed that Tesla's factory could operate with its approval as soon as next week. Of course, it's already operating, or at least that's what Elon Musk has said. We're joined now by Kara Swisher, co-host of the Pivot podcast and, of course, a CNBC contributor, opinion columns from The New York Times and so much more. And uh, no sunglasses this morning. Kara, it's great to see you. Help us understand. You know, it's Elon. I don't know what else to say. He's operating it right now. And the officials are sort of rushing to keep up with him. Um, You know, I'm sure he's sort of calling their dare. What are they going to do? And I think it's an, you know, very few people would do this. But I think you can't see a Tim Cook doing this or anybody else doing this. Um, But it's very much in keeping with his personality. Um, Obviously, the company's under pressure to to make cars. Um, and he's in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is, you know, harder hit than other areas that where manufacturing is being allowed uh, to proceed in California. And so you're going to see struggles like this everywhere. And I just think he's uh, he's just it's very typical of him to do this, to, to, to push them as far as they can. I suspect he's been talking them behind the scenes, but they weren't moving at the pace that he wanted them to be moving at. And he's been rather public with that. Do you think it's a bluff that he would leave California completely take the company and its factories effectively to Texas or move everything um, to, to the other facilities in no. Nevada? No, you think he'd no, do it? he's no got problem. facilities there and he's working there. I don't think it's a bluff at all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's expensive, obviously, but people have given him an enormous leeway. And look at the price of the stock, um, you know, since Corona, it's gone up quite a bit. And I think he would do it. I do. I, I think of anybody, I think a lot of people uh, might not. And sometimes he does bluff and sometimes he does, you know, sort of pontificate on Twitter. But I think, you know, he has he's he's done manufacturing facilities, lots of places. Right. I think Texas what, and Nevada would what do probably you make, welcome him. You know, so I don't know why he wouldn't. Most, most Silicon Valley CEOs and tech CEOs uh, talk about their relationship with their employees a lot. The relationship with the employee is very, very important. And, yeah. and the reason I mention that is if you're willing to effectively give up 10,000 people uh, in California to go elsewhere. And also, I should also mention, at least online, there are employees that appear to have leaked memos from the company suggesting uh, that they've been bullied or threatened to either come to work or to lose unemployment insurance and the like. If yeah. that was happening at other big tech companies, there would be an uproar. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, Elon's had a long history of this and there's been a lot of reporting on it and he has pushed back really hard against it. And, and you know, it's a really interesting question. He, he's he, if you remember the last time this happened when they were building, uh, I think it was the three, um, that was the same thing. He was sleeping on the factory floor. They felt safety standards weren't in place. There was lots of leaks and he just kept going. Um, and this is kind of his he feels like he's on a mission. Whenever you talk to him, it feels like he's on a mission and he has to have this happen. If you noticed, 
He was saying that other automakers got a break, but only Tesla was singled out. Um, he feels as if this is critical. To, I know it sounds like that it's not so, but I think he really does feel like a man on a mission. And so he his impatience is very clear in these tweets. I, you know, some of them are unfortunate, some of the tweets. And I don't know if he understands kind of the, imp the overall impact of what he might be setting off. Um, but I think he's just going to go forward and, and it'll be up to the officials to respond. Um, I don't right. love to compare let, let to you Trump, a, but it's not the, these techniques are not are, are not this, are not dissimilar. They're not dissimilar techniques. Well, let me ask you, it, it's a somewhat political question and it relates to Trump. He now has the backing of Trump in a very public way. Uh, and he's sort of on the Trump side, mm -hmm. if you will, of the liberate America uh, concept, if you. But on the other end, for many, many years, he would at least privately and in some cases publicly yeah. deride Trump and sell Tesla's in large part on the idea of of trying to end climate change and all of these things. So how do you how do you square that up? He's a complex person. I don't know what to tell you. I don't think he's a, uh, necessarily a Trump supporter. That's not I've never heard that. And I, of course, you know, he has been critical um, and he was on that uh, business council because he wanted to try to get uh, some impact on climate change. And so it, it's a complex situation. It doesn't mean that he's not that that he's not using Twitter to the same effect to sort of rally his troops. And he does have a lot of fans. Uh, you know, it's his technique of doing this. This is, you know, high drama, high dudgeon threats. Then he manages to somehow settle things. Um, sometimes it turns out well. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but, you know, this is a guy like he went up against the SEC. And from what I can tell, they didn't really, you know, they warned him and they said he can't do it again. And then he did it again. And so, you know, I don't know if he feels as if there's a lot of consequences for doing what he's doing. And his aim is to build these Teslas. And, and uh, you know, I, you know, he had a lot of criticism from the uh, Alameda County officials. Uh, what are they going to do? I mean, I think the mistake is is getting into this kind of fight with him publicly, but I guess that wasn't working out privately behind the scenes. And then you have Gavin Newsom in the middle of it, which is really interesting, you know, because he's been supportive of, of Musk and it's really important to keep manufacturing in California. Um, but eventually, just like happened with Amazon, you either say we want this or we're going to put up with this or we're not going to pay for this. And then you can go elsewhere. Right. So, I, I, you know, this is a, a struggle for all local officials, including protecting the safety of workers, which I think is very important. Kara right. Swisher, it is always good to see you. Got to have you back to talk about the other big valley story, which is people <laughs> that are going to work from home forever. Uh, given Jack Dorsey's plan at Twitter, oh, but it's Twitter. a conversation yeah, for Twitter. another day. Yeah, Jack can live in Africa now. <laughs> thanks. He, can live, he can live wherever he wants now. It's going to exactly. be great. All right. Uh, Thank thanks, Carol. We'll see you very soon. Coming up, Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman on the House Democrats' latest relief proposal for the American economy and the cautious reopening for business in the Buckeye State. It makes it very difficult to get people back to work if they're making more on unemployment than they can make it work. Why not provide a bonus to people to say, if you go back to work, you can take some of this unemployment insurance with you. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
This is Squawk Pod from CNBC with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. House Democrats unveiling a $3 trillion coronavirus relief bill in an effort to try to deal with the ongoing economic and health effects of the pandemic. Eamon Javers is in Washington this morning with the latest on what's inside that bill and whether it's going to go anywhere. Yeah. Good morning, Andrew. Those are both very good questions this morning. $3 trillion is the size of the bill, 1,815 pages overall from Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats. And the size of the bill is really the controversial item here with Republicans over in the Senate. Uh, They're looking at this and saying it's simply too big too soon. So we'll see uh, where it goes. What's in it? Well, start with a big ticket item. That's a trillion dollars in aid to beleaguered states. Now, remember, the state's budgets have been so hard hit by this. You've heard uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York complaining about that. Other states as well. The states can't simply print money the way the feds can. They need to fill the hole in their budget somehow. This would go a long way to do that. Also in there is a second round of direct payments to individuals, $200 billion in hazard pay for essential workers, $75 billion for testing and contact tracing related to the virus, and $175 billion in housing assistance. Nancy Pelosi was on Mad Money with Jim Cramer last night. She said uh, this is the opening bid here. Take a listen. This is a negotiation. We think this is what is necessary to meet the needs of the American people, state and local, testing, 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 and putting money in the pockets of the American people. All of these provisions have had a provenance in our former four bills that passed in a bipartisan way. All of them are supported by Democrats and Republicans across the country. Now, Republican leaders in the Senate and at the White House have said they want to see a pause here in any additional aid as they digest all of the trillions of dollars that have already been spent on aid to the country to figure out what's working and what's not working. Nancy Pelosi says she doesn't want to pause. She wants to push ahead. She's going to hold this vote on Friday in the House of Representatives. We'll see how the White House reacts. But I can tell you, I've talked to people, Andrew, over at the White House who say that ultimately this economic crisis is getting worse day by day. There's a real sense of urgency uh, to do something. And we'll see whether they agree that any of the things on Nancy Pelosi's list are the things that they think ought to be done, Andrew. Join us now with his uh, take on uh, this latest proposal and what it's going to get uh, take to get the country back on its seat financially. <clears throat> Ohio Senator Rob Portman, great to have you on the show again, uh, Senator. The uh, show. We want to keep doing things. We want to keep trying to help people. Are the uh, the Democrats just going about it in the wrong way, or there's some merit? That was the first offer, right, uh, then on arrival. But are there some things in there we need to do, and that Republicans would be willing to uh, to work with the Democrats on? Well, of course there are. But Joe, this is three trillion dollars. This is more than the last four packages combined, and it does nothing, as I see it, to help get the economy moving. And that ought to be part of at least our proposal next time is to say. Let's not just have another rescue package, which is going to be needed in certain sectors. We get that. But let's do some things to actually move this economy forward. And that's, you know, traditionally tax relief, uh, traditionally things like spending on infrastructure, smart spending, where you can actually create jobs and get the economy moving. Instead, this really goes in the other direction. So it's not only $3 trillion that's, you know, more than we've already spent in four packages at a time when our debt and deficits are at record levels, but it's also not helping in terms of the economy. It is a wish list. Uh, There are things like salt relief, which uh, for those of you living in New York, you might like that. But uh, 50 percent of that benefit on salt relief she has now, this is for state and local taxes, is going to go to the top 1 percent. So this is something that 
blue state senators have been pushing, so I'm sure they'll be happy to see that, but not in the context of this crisis. <laughs> let's focus on, yes, some things to close the gaps from what we've already done, uh, but then let's move on to how do we actually get this economy moving again. And I don't see that in the bill at all. Uh, you are a trade representative, too, and it's a, it's a political hot button whether we say that, you know, whether you discuss the origin of the virus or, but if you at least admit that maybe initially China wasn't forthcoming enough with all the details about what they had and, and now we're in this, this, this position, I mean, people get a lot more strident about what they say China did. But either way, do you think we need to, to let this affect the recent trade negotiations, future trade negotiations? Should we go through with those first and, and maybe consider this later after the, the globe starts recovering from COVID? Or, or does it, do we never do anything? Well, the trade negotiations we have ongoing with China right now are in our interests, and they're actually in the global economy's interest because it begins to level the playing field between the United States and China in the face of a huge trade deficit. So, one, we ought to be sure that China continues to implement phase one, which includes, by the way, buying more of our products, including our agriculture products, which need that market right now badly because prices are low. Uh, but second, we have phase two that we're supposed to be negotiating, which is also fundamental because it gets at the issue of Chinese subsidies, including their state-owned enterprises, which don't just damage the U.S. economy, they damage economies around the world that are forced to compete on an unlevel playing field. So the trade negotiations that are going on right now, completion of phase one, and then moving on to phase two, as China has promised, and by the way, they need to make their commitments on, on these things, those should proceed, of course. The question is, you know, where do we go from here? And there's so many issues. As you know, I spent a lot of time looking at this issue of China taking our technology, our secrets, military, economic secrets back to China through these so-called talent programs. We had, unfortunately, another example of that this week where an Arkansas professor has now been arrested, uh, allegedly, again, engaging in these Chinese programs without divulging it, fraudulently taking money from the Chinese. This is taxpayer money that's, you know, going out to do good research, and then China is taking that research. They've done it for 20 years. It's helped fuel their economy and the rise of their military. So we need to cut off things like that. And then we need to look at the supply chain issues because we need to bring more onshore, more to us, uh, to our shores of essential products, whether it's pharmaceuticals or in the case of the protective gear that we're talking about, the gowns, the masks and so on. We need to be able to rely on it and therefore it needs to come back to the United States. How do you think Ohio and Governor DeWine are, are progressing in terms of reopening the state? I've got, you know, I've got a lot of relatives still back there, Senator, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and I thought yeah. DeWine, DeWine's got his popularity's up a lot. My, some of my relatives are, are like, uh, they think it's, it's too, um, uh, that it's taking too long maybe and that, and that the, the, the time that, that he's talking about has been pushed back too far. Uh, it's, it's a microcosm of what we see in, in the political debate that we're having right now. How do you think the, uh, DeWine's doing in terms of opening up, uh, you know, trying to get the economy back open for, for people that aren't working? Yeah, I think he's doing a good job because we are reopening. Uh, so on Friday, we're re reopening restaurants for outdoor dining, as an example. Uh, we've got factories up and going. Offices are back, uh, you know, at work. Um, construction is, is going again. So I think it's smart because what we're doing is re reopening in Ohio as we're bringing on more testing, as we have more protective gear, you know, as we're beginning to see remdesivir and hopefully more antiviral medications. Those are the three big things now we need to focus on. So I think the reopening is smart. I think it's being done in a proper phasing. 
And I think you're going to see in Ohio that because we're doing it right, we're not going to see this resurgence. Are we going to have hot spots? Probably. And, Joe, that's why the testing is so important, because the testing, the contact tracing and all that is what you throw at a hot spot and stop the spread of the virus. So I think we're doing it about right in Ohio. Look, nobody knows what's what's right, as we heard yesterday in the testimony. The experts are all over the place. But the reality is we got to get back to work. we got to get back to a normal life here and do it safely. And I think those two things can be done together, and we're doing it in Ohio. Andrew. Hey, Senator, uh, had, a, had a couple of questions for you. One is, as one part of that bill, which I, I know you have questions about, but as one part of that bill, there is the intention to extend unemployment benefits through 2021. Uh, given the remarkable efforts that the, the Fed is pursuing to help businesses and also so much of uh, the, the, the previous stimulus effort, my question to you is, would you be an advocate for unemployment insurance to help people? Through the, through into 2021 at this Andrew, point? that's an example in this legislation of something that's going to hurt, not help the economy. That's how I feel about it. Uh, the additional $600 federal benefit is on top of an average of about $360 that the states have, uh, meaning that in our states right now, if you are making, say, 50000 bucks a year, it is more advantageous to be on unemployment insurance than it is to go back to work. So was it necessary to do something to pump up uh, UI? Absolutely. Uh, but the level that we took it to makes it very difficult for many small businesses in Ohio and around the country to bring their employees back. In some states, they say they're going to enforce the rule that you have to be seeking work. Therefore, if there's a job, you have to leave UI. Other states are not able to do that. In fact, I think many are not, maybe most, because they're just overwhelmed. And many employers don't want to do that to their employees. So we ought to put together a package that says, OK, let's continue to help people. But how about having a bonus for returning to work? So instead of an additional $600 of a federal benefit, again, almost twice the state benefit that's currently in place in places like New York, that makes it very difficult to get people back to work if they're making more on unemployment than they can make it work, why not provide a bonus to people to say, if you go back to work, you can take some of this unemployment insurance with you. If you take 450 bucks with you, as an example, per week, remember this is per week, uh, that would mean that in every state, for minimum wage workers, it would be more advantageous to go back to work than to stay on unemployment insurance. That $450 would go back to you, to your workplace, between now and the end of July when this unemployment insurance run, runs out, the extra benefit. And this would give us an incentive to get people back to work. It would help the individual workers who Senator, many want to get back Senator, to work. They want you, to get back to health care and connection to the company. But the, the House bill goes Senator, the opposite direction. It says, let's, let's continue this till next year. Right. Senator, the, what, what do you tell the what do you tell the person who's out of work, who doesn't have the option to go back to work because the job that they had no longer exists? The restaurant that is well, now living exactly. in a socially well, distanced world that the economics of the business don't don't work anymore. Right. If someone is out of work through no fault of their own, they can't go back. Of course, they should get unemployment insurance. And you know, we extend unemployment insurance another 13 weeks. By the way, also in our legislation, we also provided it for people who are self-employed. So, you know, that can all continue. But the point is, Andrew, we should all want people to go back to work. I mean, that, that ought to be what we're doing here in Washington is trying to help the economy move forward, not to encourage the economy to remain stagnant and to encourage people not to return to work when they're needed. So I, I hope you're talking to employers out there uh, about this, because I think what you'll hear is a consistent message, which is we're now beginning to reopen, but we're having a difficult time getting people back to work who run unemployment insurance for, for good reasons. You can see, you know, if you're if you're making in New York about 55 to 60,000 bucks a year, 
it's more advantageous to be on unemployment insurance than to be back to work. So why not provide a bonus to that person? By the way, if you did the 450 bucks mm -hmm. of a bonus to workers, good for workers, they're going to get their salary plus that. It also is great for the taxpayer. It saves the states and the federal government just back of the envelope calculation about $45 billion just between now and the end of July, $45 billion. And it helps the workers because, again, they're getting the bonus plus their salary, gets them back to work, gets them reengaged with their companies. So it's not going to work for everybody because there'll be some businesses that won't be able to reopen as quickly. But those that are reopening are looking for workers right now. So we should not be standing yeah. in the way of that. We should be helping to facilitate that. I think this is a bipartisan proposal that has, has real promise rather than what's in the House bill which is going to make it harder to get our economy back and going. Hey, hey Senator, I, I actually love that idea. I think it's fantastic because it has the added benefit of rewarding the workers who are on the front lines, the minimum wage workers who are going in and going to work when so many other people get to stay home and work. But how much Absolutely. support is there actually in the Republican Party for this? I mean, because it, it, it's not cheap. You're still talking about paying people $450 a week. It's not the $600 a week they'd be making on unemployment alone. But how, how much support do you actually ha have both from Republicans and from Democrats on an idea like this? Well, I think a lot of people are looking at it for the first time, uh, Becky, and I'm talking to Republicans and Democrats about it. Uh, people are intrigued by it because, you know, the alternative is, is unacceptable uh, because, you know, again, we need to get people back to work and encourage that, and yet we want to be sure to help these workers. By the way, I think it pairs nicely with what the president's talking about in terms of a payroll tax cut because those workers who have stayed on the job will be getting a payroll tax cut, and, and that's important too. So I think it does reward workers, as you're saying, and I think it's important for us to do things right now in Washington that reward workers, reward work in general, and help to move the economy forward without getting more revenues into our hospitals, uh, without getting more revenue into our universities and our colleges, without getting more revenue into the federal government to deal with our unprecedented level of deficit that we're looking at this year. You know, we're not going to be able to turn things around, and, and that requires us getting this economy moving again. So I think that's, that ought to be our, our, our focus here is how, in a smart way, to actually help ensure that we can get this economy up and going again safely. And that includes getting people back to work. Senator, the, the question, though, that I would ask you, and, and I want to get people back to work as, as much as anybody, uh, but I would also advocate what you just said at the end there, mm -hmm. which was we all want to do it safely. Really? Um, and there are lots of people out there yeah. that don't feel necessarily that their employers have set up a system right now uh, to do it safely, for example. There's other people... Uh, obviously, that are either uh, in a particular uh, age cohort or have underlying conditions or other things that may not be able to go back to work uh, or may not feel comfortable going back to work. And I think there's a real question of, of trying to find a balance between getting people back to work in the safest possible way. And I remind you, uh, even Dr. Fauci says we don't have the testing in place, the tracing in place. We have none of the things that you would actually want in place to set this up. So there is a, we are somewhat doing this more blindly than I think anybody would want to. And therefore, the question is, what kind of protection should we put in place for citizens in this country at a time when we're providing all sorts of insurance for businesses? Yeah, well, Andrew, look at the guidelines, because the guidelines that are set up by the state of Ohio and by CDC uh, require that these businesses do this safely. So you do wear a face mask when you're in the, on the factory floor. Uh, you do have hand sanitizer available for everybody. You do do temperature testing as you're walking into the office building. I mean, these are, these are measures that are common sense. It should be taken. Social distancing continues at work. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Of course, you need to have a, a safe workplace. In terms of the testing in Ohio, compared to two weeks ago, as of 
two weeks from now, we'll have about a 600% increase in testing. Now, Ohio is not every state, but that kind of testing is beginning to ramp up around the country. One thing that I will tell you that I do support in the Democrats' bill that they talked about yesterday is more testing and contact tracing. That's smart. That helps us reopen the economy in a safe way and keep it open, because when there are hot spots, we're going to need, as I said earlier, to throw everything at it in, in terms of testing and contact tracing. And I mean diagnostic testing, the traditional testing. The antibody test is great, too, but it doesn't replace the need for a diagnostic test. So, I mean, I think in nursing homes we ought to be testing much more frequently. So I, I think there are ways to get at this and reopen the economy that are smart. I'd much rather spend the money on more testing than continuing to have more money go into rescue because more testing is going to re result in more economic growth because it's going to get people, as you say, more safely back to work. So that's money well spent. And Dr. Fauci also indicated testing is increasing. Uh, so is this antiviral medication, thank goodness, finally. And remdesivir is the first. I hope there'll be many other the FDA approves that are that are effective. I was told by Francis Collins at the NIH yesterday that's coming. And then third, you've got to have the PPE, and finally we're getting control of that. We have now masks available around the country because they can be recycled, they can be decontaminated quickly. We have a 4.5 million a day capacity just on recycling, thanks to an Ohio company, Battelle. Uh, we have more gowns finally okay. here. We have, you know, more gloves and so on. So all of this is important, okay. but it, it should be done in conjunction with us beginning to get people back to work and beginning to get back to a more normal life. Rob, uh, Senator Portman, thank you. I, I guess 5000 a month UBI is just out of the question for you at this point. But uh, anyway, thank you. Um, we, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we appreciate it. Um, don't, virtual, don't virtual baseball, don't, don't Joe. The, the, the Reds don't. are ready to go. Yeah, finally, the they get, finally the Bengals get a quarterback, and, you know, it's, it's during this mess. Um, anyway. There's always the other side yeah. to look forward to. Hopefully. They'll be on the field. All right. They'll Thanks, be on Senator. the field. May not have many fans, but they'll be on the field. <laughs> right. okay. Thanks, guys. Next on Squawk Pod, the path forward for a direct-to-consumer shoe retailer trying to meet today's shoppers, M. Jemmy's Ben Fishman. And we actually are seeing that content advertising, telling stories, explaining what you do, how you do it, why you do it, is working better than ever. Whereas three months ago, short ad, big picture, move quickly, that's what worked. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Italy just opened for business last week. That's good news, though, for a company closer to home. MGMI is a Boston-based online retailer whose line of designer shoes are manufactured by small artisanal factories in Italy. Its co-founder and CEO, Ben Fishman, joins us this morning. Ben, uh, should also say, is the founder of Rulala, 
Um, so uh, anyway, it's nice to see you, Ben. Uh, help us understand what the last couple of, of months have been like and uh, how opening in Italy, the reopening in Italy uh, has changed, changed business for you. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Andrew. Big news for us last week with Italy reopening. We started this business four plus years ago with the idea of putting Italy back on a pedestal as a manufacturing community. You know, they make this incredibly unique and, and fabulous product. And much of the world was leaving Italy to manufacture product in areas that could be done at lower prices. We went there to put it on a pedestal and, and had seen great success. And then obviously we were hit with this with this terrible virus and we got hit two ways. One is the the consumers stopped spending pretty dramatically on our type of product. And two, Italy shut down. And with Italy shutting down, so did our flow of inventory. Um, but last week, with Italy opening, uh, very, very quickly, things turned around from a manufacturing perspective. They actually got back to business last Monday, and our first shipment of goods is coming. It was shipped out of Italy on Friday. So big news for us so as far as, as getting that inventory flowing again. But speak, speak a little bit, though, about the other side of it, which is the big question for a lot of people, the demand picture. I happen to be wearing sneakers today. I typically, yeah. when we're on the set, um, am wearing a nice pair of Italian shoes, in fact. So the question is, if people aren't going to be going out as much, are, what, what's that going to do to the demand picture for you, you think? Yeah, so I think for sure demand has changed. Um, we're actually still selling product, but it's a very different type of product. So we do make Italian sneakers, and our sneaker business is quite strong for men and for women. Dress, the dress business is very soft right now, um, and we don't foresee the dress business coming back in any significant way um, anytime soon. So we're focusing on comfort product. Um, we're also a little bit apprehensive with what happens when the world starts to reopen and the amount of inventory that's out in the market and the level of discounting that's going to take place. So not only is consumer demand different and is... Are people wearing sneakers and not dress shoes? But, you know, there's going to be a lot of product at very low prices out in the market, we believe, for a very long time. So we're paying close attention to that um, and watching that. Luckily, our product is sold at a pretty unique price point. But it's going to be a pretty interesting time for, for consumers to find value and for brands like MGemi to make sure that, that we can maintain our business and our margin at levels that, 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 we, that we need to survive. What's happened to the customer acquisition cost since most of this for you is online and direct to consumer? You know, you hear about ad rates coming down, but then again, there's the demand picture. So what, how's that changed for you? So um, CPMs, ad rates on all the major channels are lower than they have been before. The difference, though, is conversion is also lower. What does that mean? So you see ads on Facebook, you see ads on Instagram, you see ads on Google and you click on them. But is the consumer buying at the same level? No, they're not. So, yes, you're getting eyeballs. No, that's not necessarily leading to sales. Um, so businesses like ours, MGemi, we're focusing on as much as possible trying to leverage our customer file. Um, but once again, low CPMs for us does not mean high sales. In fact, low CPMs with low conversion gets you to a, probably a, a, a pretty negative spot. Have you seen any shift in terms of uh, which service is, is more useful these days? Is, is has a more has a greater efficiency. I mean, has anything changed? People keep talking about us all being at home. Is there is is Instagram working better than it used to, or Snap all of a sudden, um, you know, moving to the top of the spot? So we're finding content 
Um, you know, it used to be that that when you when you wrote long content on the internet, people would say people don't have the patience for that. It's a you know, it's a it's a soundbite economy. And we actually are seeing that content advertising, telling stories, explaining what you do, how you do it, why you do it, is working better than ever. Whereas three months ago, short ad, big picture, move quickly, that's what worked. Storytelling engagement is working better than ever for us right now. Um, and we're looking for new venues to do that, actually, um, which really opens the door. When a brand can tell a story, you can create some unique engagement. Okay. Uh, ben, we wish you all the luck in the world. And uh, we hope to keep track of your progress and hope you come back on uh, in a couple months from now and uh, let us know how you're doing. Yeah, I look forward to you putting those dress shoes back on. Appreciate it. Thanks. That's the podcast for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Eric Schmidt. He ran Google for 10 years, taking the company public, and now is advising New York State on integrating technology in pandemic response. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and listen, subscribe, and share Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.